0: inevitable in the NHL, but the degree to which it occurs is wide-ranging. When you're expected to contend for a Stanley Cup and you fail to qualify for the postseason, the change tends to be impactful. The Canucks coaching staff and most of its core players had been together for over six seasons. They tried to run it back with the same talented cast multiple times, but had just one playoff series win to show for it. Todd Bertuzzi had made it clear to management that he and head coach Mark Crawford could not move forward together, so at least one significant change was coming. But by the time next season opened, the magnitude of the makeover would surprise almost everyone.
1: He put that team back on the
2: map, man. Like There were some bleak times there for a while. For that next five or six years, he was the best power forward in the game. There was a confidence, and we
3: believed if we went out and played the way we were capable, we could score every shift.
4: Now it's kind of league-wide. I want to come see the West Coast Express, you know, see these guys in action.
5: Deadline sold tickets. Deadline cared about the community. Deadline gave back. We knew that we would never be satisfied unless we would win the Cup.
6: Everything. The whole thing. It's like a bad nightmare happened. In a matter of
3: seconds, I mean, lives basically changed forever.
0: The first order of business for GM Dave Nonas was obvious. Would Crawford return for another year behind the bench? Less than two weeks after the Canucks season had ended, Nonas made his decision.
7: I thought that we had to make a, a shift in the culture of our team. And that's not a knock on Mark at all. Again, Mark's one of the best coaches I've ever been around and he did a great job there, but our team was evolving at that point. The twins were taking a bigger role. We were adding some new pieces, new players. We were signing a couple of free agents that ended up being important pieces. It was the right time for a change. And that's one where I actually flew to, to Europe for the world championships. I landed. I didn't even leave the airport. I got back on the plane, got a flight back, and I met with Mark, and he knew right away. Again, there's difficult things that you have to do in this business, and that was probably the most difficult one I've ever done. You know, he is a, a good friend, and he was a really good coach, but we needed to, to make a shift in how we were doing things, and that was a big part of it.
0: Though Crawford would have preferred to stay on in Vancouver, he understood both the business and the rationale behind the move.
2: I'd probably taken that team as far as I could take them. And that's what the decision was in the end. It was that they felt that they needed a fresher voice for that group of people to move forward. You know, I'm proud of what I did with that group. I certainly enjoyed it. Even that last year where we missed the playoffs in the last weekend, that was disappointing. But I'm certainly proud of the work that we did there.
0: Crawford exited the organization as the winningest coach in Canucks history, as well as the longest serving. He'd amassed 246 wins in the six-plus seasons he'd overseen the Canucks at ice level and guided them to the best regular season in franchise history. He'd done so by implementing a system that made Vancouver one of the league's most exciting teams, allowing the West Coast Express to flourish while also developing Henrik and Daniel Sedin. Given those accomplishments, the move was somewhat of a surprise for players like Trevor Linden.
8: I think Dave Nonas recognized that, hey, this needs to change. And, you know, I remember having a conversation about Crow after the season and talked to him, and I didn't think he was going to make
0: the change. And, you know, credit to him, he did the right thing. Crawford would not be out of work long. Less than a month after his dismissal in Vancouver, he was hired to coach the L.A. Kings. Nonas had yet to decide on who would replace Crawford as head coach of the Canucks. He was still trying to figure out what to do with his roster. The league had changed dramatically and the Canucks had not adapted well. Vancouver's goal scoring hadn't dropped off whatsoever after the lockout, but the rest of the NHL was scoring far more. Virtually an identical goal total to the one that had made the Canucks the league's highest scoring team in 2002 now placed them 13th amongst their peers, and their goals against had ballooned to a level not seen since before Crawford arrived. While Nonis was in the midst of trying to figure out how to get his club back on track, Bertuzzi requested another meeting with the GM.
7: Ultimately, I did have a meeting with Todd and Pat Morris. While they never formally came out and asked for a trade, it was apparent that he was open to it and felt that maybe it would be the best thing for him if we did it. So again, there was no, I'm not showing up if you don't move me. It was more of a, what's the best scenario for me the player and you the team and we had a very open discussion about that and at that point I started you know looking around and seeing what might be available.
0: There was no mandate to move Bertuzzi and no deadline should a market not materialize. Nones was also looking for a coach and trying to determine how to proceed with Ed Jovanovsky and Anson Carter both of whom were eligible to become free agents on July 1st. With spring ending and the draft quickly approaching Nonis made his choice for Vancouver's next bench boss and introduced Alain Vignot as the Canucks' new head coach on June 20th. Vignot had been coaching for the Canucks minor league affiliate, the Manitoba Moose, and would have a good understanding of which young players might be able to help the parent club in the near future. He'd also worked in the pressure cooker that is Montreal, as head coach of the Canadiens, so he was well prepared to deal with the demands of a Canadian market. It was hard to know exactly what his roster would look like, however, as Nonas continued to make calls about the possibility of moving Bertuzzi. Finally, the day before the NHL draft, he found a deal he liked and agreed to trade Bertuzzi to the Florida Panthers.
7: I talked to a lot of teams about moving Todd, and that was prior to the draft. I had a few deals on the table that were, I'll use the word, adequate. There was some baggage, obviously, with him at that time, and so the value for Todd Bertuzzi for most teams was based upon his current play, not based upon what he, you know, could do. I talked to every team in the league to see if where there'd be some interest. When I ultimately moved them to Florida, walking the streets of Vancouver early six in the morning, something like that, and I picked up a message that Mike had left me, and as soon as I got to the point where I knew he was going to be. Up and about, I called him and I said, do you have any interest in Todd Bertuzzi? Taking a step back, earlier in the year, I had called Mike because I'd heard that Roberto was not happy in Florida and was not going to sign. And I had tried several times to trade for him and was unsuccessful. But at this point, when I asked Mike, if you have interest in Todd Bertuzzi, I didn't even ask for Louie at that time. And the first thing out of Mike's mouth was, well, I guess Roberto's got to be involved in that, doesn't he? And I just said, Yep. You bet he does. So would I have traded him to Florida without getting Roberto? I would have if the package was good enough. But it was a situation where I'd shown enough interest during the year that Mike felt that that was what I was going to ask for, and he put him on the table.
9: Well, the hardest part was talking to Dave about the trade. But I I knew for the team and for the city and for myself, I think it was something that had to be done. I I wish I didn't didn't ask for it. I wish I didn't get traded. I I really did. I wish I would have. Been able to stick it out and all that, but I just thought there was just too much cloud over the situation. They ended up fetching a pretty good price for me too and bringing Roberto in.
0: Bertuzzi and goalie Roberto Luongo were the headliners in the deal, but not the only pieces. In addition to Bertuzzi, Vancouver also sent goaltender Alex Auld and defenseman Brian Allen to Florida, with the Canucks acquiring blue liner Lucas Krychuk and a sixth-round draft pick in addition to their new netminder.
7: There was other pieces there where I almost screwed that up, was asking for a pick on top of it. You know, I after asking for it, I'm like, what did I just do? He might come back and say no to this whole thing. So I sat by the phone there for several hours, and he came back and said, okay, I'll give you a, I'll give you a pick as well, and threw the pick in. So, you know, I guess being greedy can bite you in the butt once in a while, but there we we ended up getting a pretty good player and obviously someone who I loved as a player and as a person, and Roberto Luongo, and he was one of the building blocks for that team for several years, and Todd got moved to a location that took the pressure off him.
0: Luongo was the type of goalie that was almost never available. A bona fide starter who'd played 65 or more games in three straight seasons, receiving Vesna votes as the league's top goaltender in two consecutive campaigns. He'd backstop Canada to consecutive gold medals at the World Championships, won another gold at the World Cup, and been part of Canada's Olympic team alongside Bertuzzi in Italy. Despite having never played a playoff game, Luongo was elite, but he'd been unable to come to terms on a new long-term contract with the Panthers and thus deemed expendable by Florida GM Mike Keenan. The man who had brought Bertuzzi to Vancouver in the Trevor Linden blockbuster eight years earlier had now acquired the talented winger a second time in a deal equally prolific as the first.
9: It meant a lot. I had a good relationship in Vancouver. He's the one who kind of kick-started my career and gave me an opportunity to succeed in Vancouver. Obviously, playing under Crawford, who played me 25, 27 minutes, and majority of the time left me alone. I flourished in, under him also, playing in his system, which was a terrific system for us. But to have a guy like him, his stature, and what he's done in the league, to have your back and being able to play under Mike and still have a relationship with Mike, it went a long way for me.
0: And so June 23rd, 2006, was officially the end of the line for the West Coast Express. But as play-by-play commentator Jim Hewson opines, the end had come much earlier.
10: I just felt like something was left on the table. It was a disappointing end. I don't feel like that line came apart in oh five oh six. I feel like it came apart in oh four. I feel like everything, for me, time for the Vancouver Canucks stood still at that point And... You knew that something was going to have to happen, it was delayed, it eventually did, that things weren't the same, couldn't be the same.
0: Marcus Nasland and Brendan Morrison remained Canucks. They knew the trade would impact their identities as players moving forward as well, but also understood what was best for their line mate and friend.
3: As sad as it was for our team and in our line and the friendships and that, it was the right thing. I mean, he would have that hanging over him every single day he came to the rink, right? Going to Florida, where obviously you're not under the microscope, you're totally incognito. At least there's a little bit of freedom. And I think time obviously heals a lot of wounds too. But getting out of a hockey-focused market where you're under the microscope every single day, and there's always kind of whispers about that. Even on public, man, people talking about it all the time, right? I mean, it's, it's got to be overwhelming.
0: Bertuzzi, along with Alden Allen, now had a couple of months to get ready for his fresh start. He was still involved in legal action with Steve Moore, who had launched a new civil lawsuit in the province of Ontario a few months earlier. But he'd certainly be under less public scrutiny for that in Florida. Back in Vancouver, Nona still had decisions to make with free agency approaching. Jovanovsky and Carter were both expecting raises, and Luongo still needed a contract extension. The salary cap had risen by $5 million but that wouldn't be enough to meet the demands of all three players and solidify the roster. Less than a week after acquiring Luongo, the Canucks announced he'd been signed to a four-year contract extension worth $27 million, making him their highest paid player. It further signaled how the Canucks were building their team and also meant Jovanovski, who had turned down Vancouver's extension offer, would become a free agent.
4: Having the opportunity to go into free agency and kind of test the market, I've said it before, I, I wanted to stay in Vancouver, but there was just too much of a discrepancy in kind of the, in the numbers, and that's
8: it.
0: On the opening day of free agency, Jovanovsky signed in Arizona for half a decade and over $32 million. The Canucks countered by signing rearguard Willie Mitchell to a four-year deal worth $14 million. Mitchell was not an offensive catalyst like Jovanovsky, but the BC native was a hard-nosed defensive defenseman who had played a prominent role in the Minnesota Wilds' upset of the Canucks in the playoffs three years earlier. At Toyota, our vehicles have always had quality and durability built right in. Because in winter, even our potholes
9: have potholes. Quality means everything to us, because it means everything to you. Lisa 2023 RAV4 LE all-wheel drive from $99
4: weekly for 60 months at 7.19% APR with $2,800 down.
9: Order yours today. Visit shoptoyota.ca or your Pacific Toyota dealer.
0: It's time to Toyota. Support for Unreal West Coast Express comes from New Balance. Hey, I'm an active guy, and New Balance has literally supported me for well over a decade. From distance running to trail running to walking my dog... I've always got New Balance on my feet. Lately, it's been all about the Fresh Foam X series for me. 1080s for the road, heroes for the trail, and 880s for everything else. Support your feet and support local. Check out the lineup of Fresh Foam X athletic shoes today at your local New Balance store in Richmond, Delta, and Langley. Having rebuilt their back end around Luongo, the Canucks needed to find a new crease for Dan Cluche and traded him down the coast to Los Angeles. Just like they'd done with Felix Potvan, the man Kluche had replaced five years earlier. Vancouver received a second round pick, Kluche, a reunion with Crawford, and a slate free of his playoff demons, which Alex Ald says should not define his career in Vancouver.
11: I don't think he gets enough credit either. I think he gets shit on a lot. Like, I get results are results, and that's fine. But I also think there's a narrative behind things that are, it's not fair because. I mean, he was, he was really good for that team for a number of years. And I don't think it's a fair representation of the way he played over his time at Vancouver.
0: In less than three months, the Canucks had moved on from their head coach and three of their core players. It was too early to say exactly what their collective persona would be, but they were banking on Luongo, redefining their identity as a team. He'd done that in Florida, but it hadn't been enough to propel the Panthers to the playoffs. Auld wasn't expected to replace Luongo in Florida, as future Hall of Famer Ed Belfour had been signed as the starter. But Auld was among a young group of players expected to provide energy and learn from their numerous older teammates, including Bertuzzi. The change of scenery had revitalized the veteran winger at least initially. Bertuzzi scored Florida's first goal of the season and assisted on three more as the Panthers blew out the Bruins 8-3 in their opening game. Having been with him the previous season, Ald noticed a big difference.
11: Yeah, Todd was just like, he was more free. Like, he was happy. And he played his game. I think he had seven points in his first four games or something. Like, he was rolling at the start. Yeah, it was like a weight had been lifted in a lot of ways.
9: Yeah, a thousand percent. I felt great there. I felt like just a new lease on life. And like I said, it was just being somewhere different. Palm trees, wearing the shorts, the sun, where I bought a home at, having Aldi there. We had Eddie Belfour there, Joe Neuendijk, Gary Roberts. So I was surrounded by a lot of very classy veterans. It was an easy transition to make. And Ole Okun was there, Nathan Horton there. We had a team. It was unfortunate. I got off to a very, very good start. I felt fantastic. I felt back to myself again.
0: But that feeling was short-lived. Bertuzzi suffered a back injury two weeks into the season and needed surgery.
9: If it wasn't for that back surgeries, I think I could have went on a pretty good tear that year uh, also. It might have changed, actually, you know what, to be honest with you, it might have changed everything in my career. I could maybe consistently dominated again in that division over there. There was a little bit more freelancing, a little bit more offensive over there, and you never know. If it wasn't for that, maybe I could have kept the, the train rolling the way it was in Vancouver.
11: I do think he had an opportunity at being that offensive force with the Panthers. If he would have been able to stay healthy, I think it could have been a lot different, and it's one of those things where I look back on it, and it's like, you're kind of sad to see it because... You know, he got off to such a good start, and there were other good offensive players there. I think that could have fed off him for sure.
0: Back in Vancouver, Nasland was also off to a strong start. The Canucks captain scored five times in the first eight games of the season, passing teammate Trevor Linden as the Canucks' all-time leading goal scorer. Team scoring was down, however, which was hardly surprising, given they'd lost a pair of top six wingers in Bertuzzi and Carter, who'd signed in Columbus after being offered a very modest raise in Vancouver despite his team-high 33 goals. Carter's absence was not slowing down the Sedins, however. Daniel and Henrik were pacing the Canucks offensively and, as Ian McIntyre describes, making a strong impression on their new head coach.
12: For the most part, he came in blank slate for everybody. And fairly early on in the 06-07 season, he sees a lot more in the Sedins, maybe, than what... Mark Crawford had seen. Even though Mark knew that they were great players and they progressed under Crow, it was Elaine Vigneault who really gave them the chance to be the first line. And so there's only so much ice time, there's only so much power play one to be shared around. And so the role for Morrison and Naslund changed a little bit.
0: Naslund remained Vancouver's captain, and he and Morrison were still important players. But they were no longer the undisputed faces of the franchise, or the offense for that matter. Sometimes they played together, other times they didn't, as Vigneault tried to find the right formula for success.
13: A.B. was interesting in the sense that he seemed like he kind of just wanted the players to kind of take a little bit more ownership. Rarely came in to talk to the team after games, which was different. It was a different feel, there's no question. Obviously, having Roberto there, knowing we had a good goaltender, we felt if we played well defensively, we found a way to score a couple goals, we would find ways to win.
0: The Canucks' record hovered around 500 as they attempted to adjust to this new style of play. Stability had always brought out the best in Nasland, and his production dipped as the line juggling continued. After playing with Bertuzzi for so many years, his habits had been shaped by their chemistry.
6: He was such a big part of my success, and just knowing where he was at all times, and we had played so many games together that I knew exactly where he was. Maybe not quite as Henrik and Daniel know where they have each other, but there's a comfort level when you play played with someone that long and you've had success with them. and So there was a big, big part missing for me personally when he left.
0: He still had a connection with Morrison, but the combination wasn't nearly the same without Bertuzzi. Naslin's formidable finishing and creative playmaking seemed like a natural fit with the Sedins. But the line never really materialized for any considerable length of time.
14: I was hoping it would happen because they're so great to play with. But on the other hand, I knew that we needed to have more than one line scoring. And uh, it was my responsibility to be the secondary scoring line there, which I I didn't think I did a good job of. But it was also a new situation for me, not being on the top line and not being in the key moments on the power play and all that. But... uh, On the other hand, it was so nice to to see the Twins get that recognition because they've worked so hard for it for many years and had to be the secondary scoring for our line, even though they might have deserved more ice time.
0: While Naslin tried to adapt to become an effective secondary scorer on a defensive-minded team, Morrison's transition was much easier.
13: You know, anytime a new coach comes in, you got to prove yourself and you just can't expect things to be handed to you. And I'm not saying anybody on our team did that, but I think I proved to him that I could be relied upon in a defensive role. You know, it's something that I'd kind of embraced in my career playing with Marcus and Todd. I knew if I wanted to play with those guys that I had to play defense. And again, not saying that they didn't, but that was more of a load on me and, and being a centerman it's just naturally I mean you're you're more responsible in your own end so I think that kind of carried over to prove that you can count on me to you know take face you can count on me to kill penalties you can count on me if we have a lead late in the game that I'll be responsible so I think he trusted me in certain roles that way.
0: Morrison's point production was slow to materialize that season as he and the rest of his teammates adjusted to their new roles. Linden understood the process well having already been through that phase of his career. You know,
8: Roberto comes in, Daniel Henrik starts to go to the forefront of the offensive thing. And and then you've got that whole team, that 2011 team that was emerging at that time, whether it be, you know, the Kevin BX's and the Alex Burrows. And, you know, this group was kind of the Ryan Kesslers are kind of finding their way, right? And that was kind of the start of that next run was people didn't realize it, but that's kind of what was happening.
12: I would say especially Naslin because he didn't play very much with the Twins. There was a thought, oh, this is you know going to be a Swedish super line, but really didn't play much with the Twins. He no longer had Todd Bertuzzi, and those two together, like the Twins, were better together than they were apart. They both had their best years, I think, in part because of playing with the other. So he's got no Todd. He's playing a lesser role. Sometimes he's not even on first unit power play. And it was just sort of a changing of an era, which happens naturally. It's the life cycle of a team. You know, Brendan Morrison and Marcus Naslin, with Todd Bertuzzi, had been such a driving force in elevating a team to a certain point, but now the engine was changing, and it was going to be the Sedin's and some others who were now going to drive the team. So that forced Naslin and Morrison to adjust to lesser roles, but also again kind of find a new place and a new way of making an impact.
7: It was difficult on them, for sure. Elaine was a different coach, a different type of coach. You know, he really didn't, I say didn't care, that's the wrong way of putting it, but he didn't really care what the players thought of how he was doing things and ice time had to be earned. So if you're performing and producing, you're going to see an increase in ice time. And there wasn't really a knock on Marcus or Mo. But there are other players that their play improved, namely, you know, Daniel and Henrik. They were becoming bigger pieces of the puzzle. And to suppress their growth wouldn't have been healthy. So it did impact them. And they were very proud. And I never really got a complaint. We had some discussions. But it did impact them as players. And ultimately, I think it was difficult to see a reduction of ice time from both those players. But they were always professional and never complained openly to me.
0: Nonas watched patiently as his group went through its growing pains. A middling team through 35 games, the Canucks began to take off after the Christmas break. Luongo's play went from excellent to scintillating and he posted a 9.32 save percentage over the next 25 games. That coincided with an uptick in Vancouver's offense as Naslin and Morrison seemed to find their grooves. Naslin registered 27 points over that stretch, Morrison 20, as the Canucks went on a 19-3-3 tear and surged up the standings. Bertuzzi remained in recovery mode down in Florida, where the Panthers had fallen out of contention. Uncertain as to whether he'd be able to get back on the ice, the 31-year-old winger wondered what the future held. Keenan had resigned prior to the season. The Panthers were expected to move players before the upcoming deadline, and Bertuzzi's contract was set to expire in the summer. That description screams trade bait. But who was interested in an injured player who might still carry the burden of an infamous incident?
9: I was laying in bed and I got a call from Mr. Bowman and asked if I thought that I would be able to come back and play and and help out the Detroit Red Wings.
0: Like most who were offered an opportunity from the legendary Scotty Bowman, Bertuzzi answered yes and then hoped the Red Wings could work out a deal with the Panthers. He headed over to Ald's house to watch media coverage of the trade deadline.
11: By the time the trade deadline came along, I'd had season-ending knee surgery. Bert was out with his back injury, but trying to come back. But so neither of us were traveling. This is 2007. and It's like we were in the, the Stone Ages. I had a Canadian satellite dish down in Florida. So I was able to get the Canadian trade shows, right? Down in Florida, you're not getting any information. So we're sitting there and like we're in my backyard. I've got this TV set up and just a bootleg satellite dish. And we're grilling burgers and like basically... He got a phone call and he's like, yeah, I gotta go, Like, I'm, I'm gonna get traded here like any minute or whatever. And he was excited because he saw like this opportunity to go somewhere where he had a chance to win and sort of a fresh start.
0: The Panthers got prospect Sean Mathias and a pair of conditional draft picks and Bertuzzi got an opportunity to go back to the playoffs, if he could get healthy. In fact, there was a chance the Red Wings would draw the Canucks in the first round. But Bertuzzi was far more focused on his health than on how his old club was doing.
9: Honestly, I would watch Mo and Nazi. obviously the team, not really. I think it was just time just to move on and create a new chapter, a new path. But I always paid attention how Mo and Nazi were doing.
0: Having settled into supporting roles, they were doing just fine. And more importantly, the Canucks were winning. Nona's brought back defenseman Brent Sopel at the deadline, and also acquired veteran center Brian Smolinski as additional reinforcements. Vancouver went 13-4-2 after the deadline and won the Northwest Division. The Canucks had set a new franchise record with 105 points in the regular season and were headed back to the playoffs. So too was Bertuzzi, motivated by the opportunity that had presented itself in Motown.
9: Looking over to Detroit Red Wings roster and where they were, I thought it would be a great opportunity if I can get myself healthy enough in order to play, but I literally flew there and I sat another month out. I played, I think, maybe three or four or five games, and then right into playoffs.
0: After sitting out the first two games of Detroit's series with Calgary, Bertuzzi picked up a goal and two assists in the final four games against the Flames as the top-seeded Red Wings advanced to the second round. Vancouver had drawn Dallas in the opening round. The Stars had accrued two more points during the regular season, but the Canucks were seated higher thanks to winning their division. It meant the first playoff start of Luongo's career would be at home and would turn into the longest game the Canucks have ever played. Here's Hendrick from the left-wing corner. leads for Olin on the left-wing boards. Behind the net to Daniel. Coming up front, Hendrick scores! Hendrick Henrik Sedin ended what, at the time, was the sixth-longest game in NHL history. The rest of the series turned into a goaltender's duel between Luongo and Marty Turco. Luongo allowed just eight goals over the next six games of the series, and the Canucks emerged victorious in front of their home fans in Game 7. Next up were Brian Burke's Anaheim Ducks, led by Scott Niedermeyer and Chris Pronger, two blue liners destined for the Hall of Fame. After losing 5-1 in the opener, Vancouver came up with another multi-overtime victory, with unheralded forward Jeff Cowan providing the heroics in the second extra session. Two of the next three games would also go beyond regulation, but the Canucks were on the wrong side of three straight one-goal losses. Nazland had scored in three of the five games, while Morrison managed a goal and an assist. Their former linemate had not fared as well as far as scoring in the second round, but Bertuzzi was off to the Western Conference Final for the first time in his career.
9: We ended up losing in the Western Finals to the Anaheim Ducks, who ended up going on to win the Stanley Cup against Ottawa. And I can look back now and say, other than St. Louis, Minnesota year with the Canucks, I thought we should have won the Cup then. This was another opportunity that I thought that we could have won the Cup.
0: Though he hadn't been very productive in the playoffs, Bertuzzi had shown he was healthy and able to contribute to a Cup contender. That was enough for Burke to sign him as a free agent that summer as the Ducks looked to reload and defend their Stanley Cup. While some viewed the two-year, $8 million contract as a personal favor to Bertuzzi, Burke scoffs at that notion.
5: You can't be sentimental. I couldn't give Todd Bertuzzi a contract because I liked him, or I loved him, or I was he was a good teammate. You don't throw money at people because for sentimental value, but... In a case where you have seen what a player can do and the the contribution he can make on the ice, how well he fits in off the ice, Todd wasn't the same player, but he's still a pretty darn good player.
0: Now back in the Western Conference, it also meant Bertuzzi would face his old team and former linemates for the first time since leaving. Of course, the Canucks had entered a new era. Luongo had finished runner-up for the Vesna Trophy and cemented his place among the faces of the franchise alongside the Sedins, who had officially taken over as the team's leading scorers. Naslin posted a respectable 24 goals and 60 points on a team that played far more defensively than it did in the West Coast Express era. But as an established sniper and Vancouver's highest-paid skater, his reduction in production became a focal point given Vancouver had finished 22nd in goal-scoring.
14: It wasn't because of lack of trying, but there's a lot of things that need to be aligned for an offensive player to produce. In this case, obviously, the H factor worked against me, but also I was a player that needed to have the comfort of knowing what my line mates did and, and in a lot of ways also relying on my line mates doing a lot of the work for me to get the chances. So I think there was a lot of line combination tried those seasons I just never found a chemistry on the lines after Todd and myself and Brendan split up.
0: Outside of Nasland and Daniel Sedin, the Canucks didn't have any proven goal scorers, as they'd never effectively replaced Anson Carter. But what was reasonable to expect from their 34-year-old captain? Here's analyst Ray Ferraro.
15: Here's the thing that I I know people don't understand. I scored 40 goals twice in the NHL. I was not a 40 goal scorer. So. If you were expecting 40 goals from me, man, were you going to be disappointed? So if you were expecting 50 goals from Marcus Naslin, disappointment. But why couldn't he be a 35 goal guy? Yet the expectations mean that's disappointing. I think a lot of people viewed Marcus in that way. I didn't view them as that they were going to be 100 point players or in Brendan's case, a 75, 80 point player. I just didn't view them as that. It felt to me like, You know the magic was off and they were going to regress a little bit to what was a more reasonable number now brendan was different because he could do different things right like he could slide into a number three center spot he could kill penalties somebody gets hurt he could move up and down as he did for the remainder of his career but marcus had to be in my mind a top end guy that was where he was at his very best
0: Naslin was heading into the final year of his contract, as was Morrison. In addition to displaying his defensive prowess to Vino, the reliable center's offensive production had barely dipped. His 51 points were only five fewer than the previous season, and his 20 goals marked a slight improvement. Morrison had no desire to leave and had mentally committed to an extension. Heading
3: into that last year that I played, there, at 07, 08. Going into my last year of my contract, my mindset was because this was the the time where guys were starting to sign a little bit longer-term deals, like five-year deals. And there were some comparables I felt that were close to me that were signing some longer-term deals. And I felt if I have a good year, I'm going to spend the rest of my career here in Vancouver. That's honestly how I felt.
0: Everyone assumed Naslin would do the same. And while he continued to diligently perform his duties as team captain, his enthusiasm appeared to have waned.
6: It was challenging, uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Being used to playing a certain way and having to change and, and follow the guidelines that was put into place. And, and not only that, just feeling that you're not going to get as many chances when you're expected to, to score goals was also a, an adjustment.
3: I remember having several conversations with Nasi on the plane or on the bus. And yeah, he was miserable, man. Like, he just was not having fun. Like, the style of the team changed for sure. It was a different makeup. It was obviously different coaches, different systems. And it was almost like the time there had just run its course. And he just was not having fun. I was probably having more fun than he was. I don't know, maybe that's just my demeanor or my nature. Pretty easy going. But Nancy's pretty easy going too. But we're all ultra-competitive, right? And he obviously has a super high standard that he had set. Yeah, and, and I don't know if, to be honest with you, like... I don't know if he was a huge fan of Vinyos, so I think that contributed to it. So, if you're not enjoying coming to the rink, yeah, it, it weighs on you, right? It's a burden.
0: The season began, and Morrison and Naslin both got off to decent starts individually. But the Canucks weren't very sharp in October. Luanga wasn't at his best to start the season, and Vancouver finished the month two games below five hundred. Things turned around quickly in November, however, as Luongo found his form and positive results followed. Vancouver picked up points in eight straight games, winning six of them, and vaulted to the top of their division, as they got set to welcome Bertuzzi and the Ducks to GM place. The former Canuck had only recently returned to Anaheim's lineup after suffering a concussion in mid October, and he was admittedly emotional in his return to the arena he'd helped bring back to life.
9: Uh, not fun. And to be honest, it wasn't fun. I think the first one was Anaheim. First time playing against Nazi and Mo. I might have went out a little bit late that night because I was out for dinner with Nazi. And <laughs> I don't know if I was feeling 100%. And it might have been okay because it would numb numbed a little bit of the pain and stuff and, and the fear of going back into what it was called GM place back then. And wasn't my best return. I did come back and score a goals later on with different teams but the first one was definitely pretty uh, scary I remember taking warm-up and looking around I'm on the other side and it just felt weird and uh it was actually a hard game to go through anyone who says that they can come back and play in a situation that they're at for a long time and it's no big deal it's just another game it's far from it so it was weird
0: Bertuzzi received a pre-game tribute and ovation but it was Luongo who earned the post-game ovation he stonewalled the Ducks for his second straight shutout and would go on to post another two days later. Naslin stepped into the spotlight in early December when he assisted on Matthias Olin's goal against the Blackhawks to become the Canucks all-time leading scorer.
14: It reminded me that I was getting older. I think that's the bottom line. Even though you try to prepare physically and be ready, it's the nature of the business. It's a young man's game and also with not Having that line combination that I was relying lots on with with Todd and Brendan, it was way more difficult to produce.
0: Morrison also produced that night, his eighth goal of the season providing the game winner in Chicago. But it was the last goal he'd score for over three months. In training camp,
3: I got hit in an exhibition game and I thought I broke my hand at first. I I went back to the bench, I didn't want to take my glove off because I thought my bone was sticking out of my wrist. And I took it off, and I'm like, everything looks fine. But I had a dislocation of my tendon there. So, you know, I played until Christmas with that, and it got to the point where every time I would try to put any pressure on my stick, that tendon would just dislocate. So I I couldn't play through it anymore. It was just, it was too painful. So I had wrist surgery in December.
0: Five games later, the Canucks lost Olin for nearly a month, further depleting a blue line that was already missing an important cog in Kevin Bieksa. By the end of January... Vancouver had fallen from first in its division to just outside the playoff picture. With only a month until the trade deadline, pressure was mounting on Nonas to bolster his roster. There were a couple of big names on the market that could enhance the Canucks' subpar scoring, but with every potential deal hinging on emerging players like Ryan Kessler or Alex Edler going the other way, Nonas declined. Instead, he'd bet on Luongo playing to his potential. The experience of last year's stretch drive and players like Morrison getting healthy. You
3: know, worked my butt off to get back because we're still hovering around the playoffs there. Like, we are pushing for a spot. But I honestly believe if I got healthy and got back in that we would make the playoffs. I thought I could be a difference maker. And played a couple games, and in Colorado, I'd blow my ACL out. Yeah, that's it.
0: For a team that had just lost Oland for the rest of the season, Morrison's injury was another significant blow to their playoff chances the Canucks lost six of their last seven games and failed to qualify for the postseason. But their finale was a celebration anyway, as it had become apparent that fan-favorite Trevor Linden was likely playing his final game in the NHL. Despite getting crushed 7-1 by Calgary, Vancouver cheered Linden each and every shift in giving him a most memorable goodbye.
8: I often say, not a Hall of Famer, never was, but not many players get to have that type of atmosphere and send off for their careers and i'll never forget that i feel honored blessed thankful for something like that it was really special
0: those positive vibes didn't last long nine days after missing the playoffs for the second time in three years dave Nonus was fired as general manager
3: we end up not making the playoffs uncertainty right nobody knows what's happening with marcus obviously nobody knows what's happening with me everybody thinks it's kind of Trev's last game, so we have a nice send off for him. And then there's
6: just a bunch of limbo. When Trevor played his last game, I thought that I would be back and, and play for at least another year or two.
0: Just over a week later, Mike Gillis was hired to be the Canucks' new GM. A former NHL player, Gillis had been a player agent for well over a decade, and among the many players he represented was Naslin. Given that relationship, everyone assumed he'd re-sign and ultimately retire a Canuck.
6: Yeah, I always said that and felt that, and I was open with that fact during the well, the absence of, of the negotiations because there was none with the Canucks, and I respect that the only thing that I would have wanted would have been a, a heads-up a little bit sooner so I, I could plan ahead.
0: Morrison wasn't sure what to expect. I meet with Gillis
3: face-to-face about my thoughts, and he kind of shares some thoughts on me and we know I, I just had knee surgery in, in April and anyway they did offer me a one year deal which I thought was you know just more of a token offer than a serious offer that for me it was kind of writing on the wall about what you know he thought of me as, as a part of that team moving forward so I mean it was a no-brainer for me to move on to based on that I still believe to this day if we make the playoffs known this does not get fired I sign a long-term deal and I finish my career in Vancouver I believe that
7: I certainly would have Tried to keep them both. I think Marcus deserved the opportunity to come back if he so desired. And Brendan as well. I think that they earned that right to come back with their play, as long as they were willing to accept the roles that they were going to be given. Ultimately they you know they chose different routes for their career. But I would have tried to keep them both, but I I understand why they would have wanted to move
0: on. So Morrison and Naslin were both headed to free agency. And surprisingly, so was Bertuzzi. After an up-and-down season in Anaheim that saw him score just 14 times, the Ducks had decided to buy him out of the final year on his contract.
9: The guys there were awesome. Chris Prager was awesome. Getz, Pears, uh, Georgie Peros. I'm still friends with all these guys. Timu. Like, we had a lot of very, very good players, and it's very hard to go back-to-back, and those guys went through a war in order to win it the first time. And I was so happy for May Day that he got his cup and everything, but be there and play there I love the experience Unfortunate fortunate it didn't work out because unfortunately they won the cup before and it was with Randy Carlisle and I think from the get-go Randy wasn't the biggest fan of myself or Matthew Schneider and it was Berkey who brought me in so it was kind of it's weird um, just some coaches don't like you you don't like some of them and you look back on it uh, you miss The times where your coach that you had gave you the freedom to go and play like I did in Vancouver.
0: Two years after their final game together, the men who made up the West Coast Express were all headed in different directions. Naslund was off to the Big Apple after signing a two-year deal with the Rangers.
6: New York really wanted, wanted me to come there, and it ended up being a good move for me as well. Obviously, it, it, it worked out well for the Canucks and, and almost winning the Cup. But for me, in hindsight, it was good to get a fresh start somewhere else. I always also said that I, I want to leave the game on my term I I don't want to be someone that lingers on too long and and someone that leaves with a bitter taste in his mouth. I I wanted to play as long as I felt that I I was contributing. And I had a decent season there and enjoyed it, but felt that it was after that season I was done and ready to hang him up.
0: Naslin scored 25 goals for the Rangers in his final NHL campaign, choosing to retire after 15 seasons and over 1,100 games played he finished five goals shy of 400 while accumulating 869 points. Morrison elected to stay on the West Coast and reunite with management that believed in him. The
13: Anaheim situation came up the first morning of free agency. I got a phone call from, from Berkey, who was down there now after he had left Vancouver. And since Dave Nonis had been fired at the end of the season, Berkey had hired him in Anaheim as well. So obviously very familiar with both Berkey and Dave, you know, they basically said to me, listen, Mo, we know you had surgery, but here's the situation. We have our top line, Getzlaff Perry, and we're looking for a guy to kind of come in and take over kind of Andy McDonald's spot who played with Solani. And we see you coming in and playing with Tamu. We think it's going to be a great fit. And I was like over the moon, like, geez, what an opportunity here. At the same time, I talked to a couple other clubs that had offered me longer term deals and more money. But I bet on myself, essentially, at the end of the day. I figured I was going to go in, play with Temu. My knee would be fine. They actually gave me the option to sign a one-year deal or a two-year. But I signed a one-year deal, again, betting on myself. And man, it was a tough year. I, <laughs> it was a tough year. My knee you know, was stable and, and I could play. But I felt that I only ever really got up to about 75 80% that year. I, and a huge part of my game was my skating, creating space, you know, separating from guys, and I just couldn't do it.
0: Morrison was dealt to Dallas for the stretch drive, but was merely a rental for a Stars team that would go on to miss the playoffs. His next stop was with a loaded Washington Capitals squad that dominated the regular season led by a young Alexander Ovechkin. The Capitals rolled into the playoffs as the number one team in the league, but were stunned by Yaroslav Halak's unworldly goaltending and succumbed to the Montreal Canadiens. The missed opportunity stung Morrison, but it led to a chance for a reunion.
13: So I had a pretty good year in Washington, but obviously, immense frustration and regret that we lost in the first round of Montreal in Game Seven—one of the biggest upsets they say in in the first round. You know, I would have loved to have gone back to Washington because that team was still competitive, but it didn't work out. So that summer, it was difficult gaining some traction as far as getting a deal done. My routine was: I always came back to BC in the summer. And would skate with guys that typically played with the Canucks or other guys from the area. So I started to do that. I didn't have a contract. We're getting closer to training camp. And I remember we skated at GM Place with the guys and and AV was still there coaching. So he called me over to the bench and said, Mo, what are you doing next year? I said, well, talking to a few teams right now, but don't have anything cemented. And he kind of said, well, what about coming to camp? And I said to him at first, I'm not coming to camp without a deal. It was insulting might be too strong of a word, but it was a bit of a pride thing as well, right? You've been in the league this long and you've kind of proven yourself, like, why would I go to camp without a deal? So fast forward another week, AV calls me in again. He says, hey, I want to see you in my office. So I go back in there. He's like, listen, I've talked to Mike. I know what you can do. I I coached you here for a couple of years. I think you could be a great fit on this team. So I, I sat there and thought about it and a little disappointed that nothing had come to fruition yet, but... I was willing to come back. I knew my role would be different, and I was fine with that. The value of going to a team that had a chance to win really superseded anything, and I knew Vancouver had a great team. So we started looking at rental homes and looking at schools for our kids because I figured I was going to be back in Vancouver. With my conversations with Avi, and he never came out and said directly, you know, if you come to camp, you'll be on the team. But the feeling I got from him and talking to him, if I came to camp and showed, well that there was a very, very good chance I would be on the team. So I committed to come to camp without a deal, and I thought I had a good camp. And halfway through camp, I got a call from Calgary saying, listen, we don't know what's going on in Vancouver, but if for some reason things don't work out, we'll sign you. So I said, well, I appreciate the call, but I think things are gonna work out here. So camp ends, and then Sunday's the final day for cuts. And I got a call from my agent that afternoon, Kurt Overhart, and The rug was literally pulled out from under my feet. He just said, you're not gonna believe it, but I just got a call and they're not gonna sign you. I was in shock. I'm like, what? What did they say? He'd said, well, the message they sent to me was they wanted to go younger and they wanted to go bigger. I said to him, well, (laughs) they couldn't have figured that out two weeks ago when camp started. Like I wasn't gonna get any younger and I wasn't growing in camp. So I was, yeah, I was pretty disappointed to be honest with you, like very, very disappointed.
0: That Canucks team would earn the President's Trophy as regular season champions before nearly winning the Stanley Cup, falling to the Boston Bruins in seven games.
13: You know, in my mind, I'm always like, listen, if if I was there, could I have helped them get over the top and win that year? That's something that goes through my mind a lot, but you're right. You can't dwell on the past, right? It'll drive you nuts.
0: Morrison signed a one-year deal in Calgary and was on pace to eclipse 50 points when he suffered a torn ACL in his other knee in early March he would play one more season, the bulk of it in Calgary, before a deadline deal led to a short stint in Chicago where he officially finished his career. Morrison scored exactly 200 NHL goals as part of the 601 points he accrued in well over 900 games. Bertuzzi would end up playing longer than either of his former linemates. After being bought out in Anaheim in the summer of 2008, he got a call from Calgary where he chose to reunite with Keenan, who was now coaching the Flames.
9: I got to play with Jerome McGinley, which was pretty cool. We battled so many times with Vancouver and Calgary. And to be on his side and watch his competitiveness, his leadership, and, and how he carries himself, just a first-class guy. And Craig Conroy was there. Adrian O'Coin was there. We had a very good team over there, too. We did well. We had a very good season. It was a fun season. I love the city of Calgary. I thought it was a fantastic place to play. And hopefully at some point in time they get a new barn and new rink in there. I think that team, that city deserves it.
0: Though he enjoyed the experience, Bertuzzi never felt as comfortable in Calgary, or anywhere for that matter, as he had in Detroit. His playoff run there had left a lasting impression, which is why he chose to spend the last five years of his career with the Red Wings.
9: Kenny Allen is one of the more incredible people I've ever come across and met. He's black and white, he tells you the way it is, but he's got compassion, and he just makes, he makes you want to play hard for him. But I think it was the systems, I think the system freed me to just come into the organization and play a role. I went from first line, second line, third line, fourth line. I would rotate through. If the big boys weren't going, I'd go up there and I'd get to play 15 games with them. And, and I'd go down to the second. I played with likes of Dan Clear, Owen Franz and Philip Pula, Nick Lidstrom. It was fun hockey to play. It was winning hockey. It was so fun to know that every time you came down on the rink, you had a chance to win each and every night, just because of the first class in the Red Wing way. And Mike Babcock, say what you want about the person, or whatever. But to me, I thought he was a fantastic, fantastic coach. Across every T, dotted every I. He worked extremely hard, and his system had success. And everyone bought in. It was an enjoyable place to play. The Joe Lewis was an awesome place to play. The fans were fantastic. The overall experience was fantastic.
0: He'd play another 35 playoff games in those final years with Detroit, reaching the conference final once more, but falling just short of playing for the Stanley Cup. All told, Bertuzzi played for six NHL teams, amassing 314 goals and 770 points over 1,159 games. His lengthy legal battle with Steve Moore was finally settled out of court in August of 2014. Four months after Bertuzzi's final game, ...and more than eight years after the lawsuit was originally filed. So what then is the legacy of the three players who formed the West Coast Express? Well, it's complicated, and it probably depends who you ask. From an individual standpoint, Naslin was the most prolific. Over a three-year span beginning in 2001-2002, Naslin led the entire National Hockey League in scoring with 278 points... 36 more than his closest competitors, one of whom was Bertuzzi. He won a major award with the Lester B. Pearson in the middle of that period, and was voted an NHL first-team All-Star in each of those three seasons. At the time of his retirement, nasland was the Canucks all-time leader in goals and points, marks since passed by Daniel and Henrik Sedin, respectively.
16: To me, he was a way better goal scorer than I was. I think his shot was top in the league when he played, so... I think we were different players. Obviously, I played with Henrik my whole career. He obviously had Todd and Brandon too, but I think individually he was a way better player than, than I was.
0: Naslin's eight-year stint as captain remains tied for the longest in franchise history, along with Stan Smeal and Henrik Sedin. On December 11, 2010, Naslin's number 19 was retired in Vancouver, where it now hangs in the rafters among other Canucks greats.
6: I got an outstanding honor when my church was retired and everything that came with that. So I I have perfect closure with my time in my and the relationship with the fans.
0: For anyone who watched Bertuzzi at his peak, there was no denying his impact or ability, as described here by sportscaster Don Taylor and head coach Mark Crawford
3: and I'm watching him take shots and I'm thinking to myself, am I seeing this? Like, And he's doing tricks with the puck. I'm like, this guy is massive. He's just huge. Nobody that big should be uh, allowed to skate that
2: well and have such soft hands and have that much edge and be that mean. Like, how'd the Canucks get this guy? What a star. When he was in that period, I would say from... You know, when I first got there to in around the time that there was the lockout, he was fearsome. Like, he was feared. Like, that's no fun to have to play against that big guy who plays physically. You know, that's the beauty of Todd Bertuzzi is for that next five or six years, he was the best power forward in the game.
0: That peak, of course, came to a crashing halt the moment he hit Steve Moore, who never played pro hockey again. For some... That will define Bertuzzi's legacy more than any goal he scored or highlight real play he made.
1: Obviously, I I really hope and wish that Steve is doing well and he's helping his new life. And uh, like I said, it was just a nightmare situation for a long time. I can honestly say I really think that situation with everything that went on, I really think that at some point in time I could have been a Hall of Famer for sure. And I think that, fortunately, that that took a big toll on myself, the city of Vancouver, and the Moore family. So there's a lot went down.
0: The words underrated and underappreciated come up most often when people are asked to describe Morrison's impact. He never hit the highs of his ultra-talented linemates, but he was essential to each of them reaching their potentials. He was the kind of player that other players, like Daniel Sedin, Truly appreciate.
16: He had all the things you need to play on the top line. He had the smarts, he had the skills, he could pass the puck. He was just, I wouldn't say sneaky good, but I think, I mean, when you play with him on the same team as teammates, you realize how good he was. But I think maybe other teams around the league maybe didn't see that same things in him. But I think you can tell right away when you start practicing and playing games that he was the real deal.
1: As he's up in the rafters, Mo, what's that, is a Ring of Honor? It's a crying shame that Brendan Morrison isn't on that wall. That's what I'm going to leave you with. It's a crying shame for the amount of work and for what he did for that city, both in the community, but most importantly on the ice because he was a huge, impactful part of that. It's a crying shame that he's not up there and I really hope that he gets that reward because he deserves to be up on that thing and he should be a Canuck forever.
3: Man, that honestly, that's pretty humbling. Yeah, very humbling. I appreciate Todd saying that. I mean, I've never had a discussion with him about that. You know, I think that says a lot about, I guess, our relationship over the years, our friendship, respect for one another, not only as, as, as players, but as people. Man, that's pretty cool he said that. That's, that's awesome.
0: The legacy of the line itself is multidimensional. Statistically, it was the best line in the NHL for over two years once Crawford assembled it in January of 2002. Jim Hewson, the man often credited with naming the line, says their collective chemistry is rarely observed.
10: If they could have won a championship, then they live in history as one of the best lines in hockey. I still think that they resurrected a franchise that was a mess, and it was largely on their backs. They brought an excitement to the arena, not just in Vancouver, but to every rink they played in. That was second to none. There was not a more dependable line for two or three years in the NHL than that group. And that doesn't happen very often. That doesn't happen in a lot of places.
9: I think truthfully, and I think they would both say the same thing, that just could never find that kind of connection ever again. I played with some pretty impressive players in Dad Soup, Filipula, Zetterberg, Franzen, and all this kind of stuff. But what we had was just once-in-a-lifetime chemistry that you rarely find or get. And I always remember seeing the Legion of Doom in Philadelphia, and I thought that we could be that and even more. And uh, we ended up having a lot of very good success together. And, And I think we still talk about it that I think uh, one thing was missing was not winning the cup together, and I think it was something that we could have done for sure, and it's unfortunate we didn't.
0: Bertuzzi brings up an off-mentioned fact. For all of their points and regular season victories, the Canucks managed to win just a single playoff series when all three players were together in Vancouver. We
1: didn't bring the regular season game to the playoffs. The playoffs is a whole new beast The ice goes from 200 feet to 100 feet. It feels like you're suffocating and we just didn't handle the pressure enough and uh, I can sit back here and everyone can say everyone can have their own opinion on that but with that team, that kind of players, man, if you go down the roster, we choked. We didn't do what we should have done and we weren't able to accomplish what I believe we should have. I mean, but that's what you're judged upon and rightfully so.
6: So, you have to be self-critical when you look at everything in hindsight Then it's always easy to look at circumstances and and injuries and all that stuff I think that happens to every team so we we just couldn't pull it off when the games were were on the line.
3: Hands down without a doubt 100% my biggest regret or largest failure I guess with playing in Vancouver I mean I just for the life of me I mean I mean okay you can say yeah okay Colorado they won the cup Detroit they won the cup they were loaded but Even to this day, I think we were right there. You know, we were right there, and it's shocking, really. It is shocking that we we didn't have more playoff success.
0: Brian Burke doesn't disagree, but is quick to point out what the West Coast Express did in Vancouver as opposed to what they didn't.
5: The legacy of that team will be, we never won anything. And until you win anything, you can't talk about it being a great team. But what you can talk about is, that's one of the most entertaining and successful lines in the last 50 years. And that line sold tickets, that line cared about the community, that line gave back. Like we did more in the community than any other line in that time. And the twins took on that same tradition. So I'm proud of their place in history. The Canucks will look back on the West Coast Express in very favorable terms.
0: Because Burke, like anyone else familiar with the situation, knows how apathetic the market had become in the late 90s. Players like Jovanovski, Henrik Sedin, and Linden witnessed it.
4: You can't just discount like the fact that these guys put people in our stands. It really kind of drove this organization up into an area where you know, everyone wanted a, you know, it was Vancouver Canucks, Vancouver Canucks fans all around. I, I think they had a positive impact on a lot of people. I think the way they played is how guys want to play today. I think that's where their legacy is. They really had a style of game that guys would love to play and try to play it. You know, it's usually the top three guys on each team have the ability to be that creative. But when you look at Marcus, the way he shot the puck, the way he thought the game, all on the same caliber, you know, his IQ and like knowing where these guys are, and then a bull like Todd. Where can you think three guys like that are today in the league? On a line.
16: You just don't see it. They made Canucks hot again. <laughs> like they they created a buzz around around this market, around this team and, and I think they brought a lot of fans back in, into this building. And they were really the the guys that turned the corner for this for this franchise uh, to the better because when we came in in the year before, there was not a lot of people in the stands, but they turned this building into a sellout every night uh, for for years and years, and that uh, that's all on them.
8: I think those three symbolize a reemergence of the Vancouver hockey fan. People think of the '94, and then there's this gap here, and then the next thing that connected people with this organization and with the game was the West Coast Express. I mean. They were fun to watch and people got emotionally invested because they cared because they loved to watch these guys. And the personalities, that's the cool thing. When I came back, I thought, wow, this is amazing. The fans are really connected to these players. They know these guys, they love these guys. They've watched these guys kind of grow. They were young and they, they were really invested and that's their legacy.
0: It's that feeling the West Coast Express created in fans and arenas that defines the line more so than any statistical measure, according to broadcasters Tom Larshide and Ray Ferraro.
5: That was the resurgence of
3: Canucks hockey coming back, you know, after things dipped so poorly after the 94 run. That was euphoria. That's when it all started. And then, of course, it came
15: back, I think, with the West Coast Express and that team. The West Coast Express played with a flair that you hope your team has. It's fun to watch. At the end of the day, one team wins the Stanley Cup every year. It would be awesome if you could watch your team and there was flair and style
2: to it. And that's what they had. Head coach Mark Crawford concurs. I thought that they brought the excitement back to the Vancouver market. I thought that they were a line that people came to see. And, you know, how they got named the West Coast Express, I mean, I still don't even know the full story of it, but it was captivating. And they were a captivating line. And people got their money's worth when they came to see them play. You know, we could have some awful games where they were great for, you know, a period or a period and a half. And... People got their money's worth. They were that type of guys that could bring you out of their seats. They could do it with physicality. They could do it with hard work and hustle. And they could do it with just pure, unadulterated skill. When asked
0: what they believe their legacy is, here's what Naslund, Bertuzzi, and Morrison had to say.
6: Well, I like to think that we were part of relighting the hockey torture fire in in Vancouver that was declining there for a few years, that we played an exciting, entertaining brand of hockey. And even though the legacy probably always going to be that we we never won a cup, but we did try and, and hopefully we entertained for a few of those years.
1: You can't go without complimenting the teammates that we had, Sandy Salos, like, Eric Malik's like we had some unbelievable hockey players come through there so we're only as good as your supporting cast is and we had outstanding supporting cast it's just difficult looking back that we just didn't have more success it was like we really wasted a really really good opportunity for a couple years unfortunately you know what I'll take the wasted part because it wasn't a waste because we put that city back on the map where it was one of the most popular Canadian teams for a while and people tuned in in the East Coast at 10 o'clock at night to watch this show. So it wasn't a waste, but we underachieved playoff-wise. That's a tough question to
3: answer. I mean, I don't know if it's our position to you know comment on, on legacy. I mean, that's a pretty strong, strong word. If you're asking me what I hope it is or what I would like people to remember us as, I would like people to think of our line as guys that really brought an exciting brand of hockey back to Vancouver. It really kind of hit home with, with young kids. You know, I, I really hope that we caught the attention and encouraged young kids to get involved in sports, like in hockey or in sports. And, and I hope they realized or they saw how much fun we were having on the ice and, and the enjoyment we got, you know, playing with one another.
0: But their impact was felt far beyond Vancouver, according to the greatest to ever play the game, Wayne Gretzky. In The Great One's estimation... Part of the legacy of the West Coast Express lives on in the present-day NHL.
17: Well, they were tremendous. And you know what made the line so unique? Obviously, their hockey instincts and their unselfishness to play together. But I I say this to people. Back when they were doing what they did, we were still in that era of how do we prevent goals? No four-on-fours. Clutching and grabbing and hooking were heavily involved. And Mario was probably the most outspoken person that really finally got everybody to understand that, you know, the game has to change, we can't be hooking and holding, and the slashing that went on, that we needed to let the skill of the game come to the forefront. So what those guys did in that era is pretty remarkable. Today, you know, there's three on threes and four on fours. And if you get a power play, the faceoff starts in the offensive zone. So we've, we've gone from trying to figure out ways to prevent goals to try to figure out ways how can we have more goals and make it more exciting for the fans. And that line is part of, you know, the reason or the success of the National Hockey League to why people wanted to see the rules change because of skill and talent like those three guys had.
0: They were an antidote for a league suffocating its own skill. A defibrillator for a market without a pulse. Three players who found a team that needed them as much as they each needed a second chance. The West Coast Express won't be enshrined in the Hockey Hall of Fame. They won't be remembered as the leaders of championship teams. But those who saw them play will never forget how they excited, how they inspired, and how they captivated their audience at a time when very little did. They brought old fans back. They brought new fans in. And they brought them all to their feet by bringing out the best in each other. Be sure to follow Unreal West Coast Express on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our pod page at unrealsports.com and at Unreal Sports on social channels for information on upcoming content and future seasons. Unreal West Coast Express is a production of Toolkit content in collaboration with GoGoat Sports. Audio production is by Andre Deacon. Writing and narration is by me, Scott Rentoul. Podcast supervision comes from Aaron Johnson. NHL game audio courtesy of the National Hockey League. Special thanks to the following NHL personnel. Hannah Reidenour, Matthew Manicker, Teresa Wiltshire, and Nick Martinez.